So we're, uh, we're going through a series on lids, going to be talking about that. I know I've shown you this, I've used this PowerPoint background before. How many noticed that said, hey, I've seen that one before? Yeah, I love that background. All those, which door? Well, how do I decide? Where do I go? That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. We're actually going to be looking at a number of scriptures. The first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and there is a Bible app event for this. There wasn't in the first service, but it took it a while to perk, and it's finally available. Uh, you can get it if you have trouble. There's also a link on our Facebook site to take you there uh, directly without the app, so you can follow along that way. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy 30. We're talking about lids. These are things that hold us down, things that trap us, things that keep us um, kind of stuck where we are. And um, the lid we're talking about today is the lid of indecisiveness. There's this diagram that's been floating around uh, on social media since before there was social media. You're like, ah, oh, what? And what that means is I can remember seeing this in, in email coming to me from friends who thought, oh, I'd like to send this funny joke to Pastor Steve, this funny picture to him. I remember it coming in on dial-up. I remember it just taking that long to show up on my phone. It looks like this. It says how men do shopping. And how women do shopping. And if you can't see it in the back, I'll make it bigger. Just move forward and you'll be able to see it, right? Yeah. How men do shopping. The guy goes in and he goes right back out. And how women do shopping. She is all over the place there, isn't she? Wow, is that sexist or what? All the women are like, that's it, I'm out. Pastor Steve is a sexist. Well, let me, let me just say this. Um, um, that is not entirely accurate. It is somewhat accurate, though. My wife, when she goes to Joanne Fabrics, she can spend, she's been in there three days before. <laughs> you know, the, the Mall of the World uh, in Minnesota, it has three miles of benches in it. Every quarter mile, there's another skeleton of a guy who just waited and waited and waited. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's cute, right? But let me be honest with you. I'm just as bad. I'm just as bad about tires, of all things. Need to get tires for my Tahoe. Okay, which one has the longest life? Which one has the best warranty? Which one has a pretty cool, cool factor on it? Which one has good traction? Which one is not real noisy? Which one has a good value, a good price? And I have spent literally two to three weeks, Dave Clark is nodding, researching. If I were in Joanne Fabrics, I'd have a tent outside the door looking for tires there because uh, I, can, I can be very indecisive about such things. I don't think that's an issue when it comes to fabric. I don't think it's an issue when it comes to tires. But I think when indecisiveness becomes part of the pattern in our life, when it marks us and marks our, our behavior consistently, then it can become, it can become a lid. It could become a lid with the tires. For example, if I can't make a decision about which tires to get, you know what's going to happen. I'm going to flunk inspection. I'm going to be driving around on bald tires. My wife is going to be crawling underneath there, getting the spare down to put it on for me. You know, who knows what will happen, right? Right. I want to talk to you about this issue of indecisiveness. We've talked about nearsightedness. We've talked about rearsightedness. We've talked about arrogance. We've talked about covetousness. Today, I want to talk to you about the ability to choose. It's a God-given ability that you and I have. From small things to, like, what am I going to have for breakfast to big things, like, where am I going to go to college? Where am I going to work? Am I going to get married? Who am I going to marry? Small things, big things, all kinds of things. God has given you the ability to choose. And I want to say to you, God did not have to give you that ability to choose. I have one of these in my pocket. Do you have one of these? Let me just open it up right now. Hey, Google, 
Call Chuck Kim on speakerphone. Can you hear it? That's how it always sounds when I call Chuck Kim. That guy is never home. <laughs> He's just never home. You know? And then at the end it'll say, leave a message, but Chuck doesn't know how to get his messages, so that's <laughs> that's pointless. Here's what my cell phone has never done when I tell it to do something. Call Chuck Kim on speakerphone. No. It's never said no to me, right? My mom, when, when I was a kid, she had one of those stoves that you set it for 11 o'clock to come on. And we'd go to church on Sunday, and at 11 o'clock, that oven would fire up, and she's got a roast in there. And never did we come home, and the stove was standing there saying, I didn't feel like it. <laughs> Cook it yourself. Never happened. We create things that have no freedom of choice. God, by a miracle that is beyond our understanding, with all our artificial intelligence and everything else, God has surpassed that so far by giving you and I the ability to make decisions, big ones and little ones, good ones and bad ones, holy ones and sinful ones. It's part of what makes us human. And he gives us the ability to choose whether to follow him or not. Now, if you lean toward Reformed theology, which I tend to do, that can be a little bit tricky. And by the way, if you're having trouble here, like, wait a minute, I don't know if God gives us, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. Speak to me later. We'll talk about a word called concurrence, which is a beautiful, beautiful theological word that solves that problem for you. But let's not talk about the theology of it. Let's just look at a couple of verses in the Bible, a couple of passages. I ask you to open to the first one. It's in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. And here God has called the people of Israel. He has chosen them out of all the people on the earth. He has chosen them. And now he's talking to them about choices that they need to make. It's just going to read two verses. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy 30. Listen, this day, this is Moses writing for God. This day I call the heavens and the earth as a witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life that your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give you to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting, the language that is used in verse 19, where he says, I call heavens and earth as a witness against you. And here's what he's saying. He is saying, don't ever say, I didn't give you this opportunity. Don't ever say, well, I didn't have a choice. I call heaven and earth as a witness that this day I am giving you this choice. Choose life so that you may live. God gives us that choice. And you find it throughout Scripture. You find it in the very next book of the Bible. You don't have to turn there, but it's in the book of Joshua. Long about verse 24, there's a famous passage of Scripture. It's where, it's where Joshua is speaking to the people of God. And he says, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, We will serve the Lord. Choice. It's a gift from God. It is something in which God expects you to engage. And not just in the Hebrew Scripture, not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he speaks about choice again and again and again. 
You find it in Romans chapter 6, for example. In Romans 6 and verse 12, the Word of God says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. That's a choice. Make the right decision. And he goes on in the very next verse, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but offer yourselves, but offer yourselves to the Lord, he says, as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Make this decision. It's the right decision. Choose. For sin will no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. Make the right choice. And it's obvious if the choices you are making are choices towards sin, you will not become the person God wants you to become. You can't fool yourself that way. I know I'll become the person God wants me to become, but I'm going to mess around with sin a whole bunch. Not going to happen, right? But I would say to you as well, I would say to you as well, even not choosing, like saying, I'm just not going to decide, that too can actually create a lid for you and keep you from being who God wants you to be. Failure to choose creates a lid. Indecisiveness is actually a lid that prevents us from growing into who God has in mind for us to grow into. Now, that might seem awkward the way I keep saying that, to become who God wants you to be, to grow into the person God wants you to grow into. Because I'm telling you, the sermon series about lid isn't so that you can be who you want to be. Because it's never about yourself. It's always about him. Rick Warren started the book, that famous book, with that line. He said, it's not about you. It's always about God. And so you need to choose to follow him and make wise choices along the way. Indecisiveness prevents us from being who God wants us to be. I say that because it gives your power to someone else. I want to illustrate this with an illustration from politics. I hate politics. And you know me well enough to know that I am never political. I think sometimes people profane, profane the holiness of preaching with the politics that we bring to it. I don't do that. I don't do that. So it's just an illustration, okay? Who's the name of the actress that was in the middle? The mom. Anybody know her name? Say it again. Yes, thank you. I couldn't remember that. That's anomic aphasia when you can't remember names. Patricia, she was also Raymond's wife, wasn't On Everybody Loves Raymond, right? Okay. I, I was reading an article about her and her political perspectives because I was thinking about politics one day. And I came upon this, and, and she said something like this. And I went to find the article again. I can't find it, so you're getting this from my leaky memory, okay? But she said this. She said, I didn't vote in the last election. In fact, I'm not voting in any more elections because I don't think there's anyone qualified to do the job we have established. I'm like, yeah, I get that, right? I mean, there have been times that I've come to the day that you're supposed to vote and said, where's the none of the above option? I don't think anybody can do this. I don't even think I'm going to vote. There have been times I've felt that way. Whether I acted on that feeling or not is my business and not yours, <laughs> right? But here's what you need to know. That when you choose not to vote, when you say, I'm not going to make this decision, it is made for you. You have given someone else the power. And honestly, I think that might be kind of small when it comes to voting, but when it comes to your life and the everyday decisions that you make 
about doing the right thing or doing the easy thing, about doing the godly thing or doing the common thing, about doing the Christian thing or just doing the whatever thing. Every decision that you make along those lines, if you choose not to decide, what does Rush say? You still have made a choice. That was good if you're a Rush fan, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just keeping you awake, man. That's all I'm doing. (laughs) Why would you give that power to someone else? Moreover, indecisiveness creates a lid because you're actually allowing fear to rule in your heart. Indecisiveness is often nothing more than an indicator that you've allowed fear to sit on the throne of your heart, so you're not going to decide. You can't decide because you're afraid to decide. Now, fear can be healthy. I have a fear of heights. So that doesn't keep me off the ladder. That makes me hold on with both hands when I'm on the ladder, right? Okay. It's a healthy fear for me because I'm not really coordinated. It's a good thing that I have that fear. But fear of making decisions, godly decisions, correct decisions, moral decisions, that's not a healthy fear. That's the kind of fear that God says over and over and over, fear not. One of the most popular Bible verses that people memorize along the way is Isaiah 41.10, where the scripture says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you, the King James used to say, with the right hand of my righteousness. With my righteous right hand. You see, God is saying, don't let fear reign in your heart. Why? Because when fear reigns in your heart, you'll be afraid to make decisions and afraid to make the right decisions sometimes. If you grew up in church, you probably grew up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. And when that is firmly rooted in your mind, when your perspective of God is the perspective of a God who loves you dearly, then you find it is safe to make choices. The disciple who Jesus loves speaks of how love makes decisions and living safe. He says in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now, that can be confusing. That last phrase, has not been made perfect in love, can be confusing to some of us because our perspective of the word perfect is limited to without stain or blemish, without flaw. And that is not, in this context, what is meant. There's a second perspective of the word perfect in Scripture that means complete. Okay? So, an artist who draws a picture... He may look at it and say, I can see the flaws that I put in it, but it's complete. And in that sense, it's perfect. It's complete, even though it has flaws. So John isn't saying the one who fears isn't perfectly sinless. Here's what he's saying. The one who fears has an incomplete perspective on the love of God. And if you have a lacking perspective of the love of God, if you don't understand the fullness of his love given you when he died on the cross for your sin, then you will fear. You'll fear like, what if, he, what if God just slaps me down? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say to me, Pastor, God just slapped me down. Really? Really? I have never slapped down Tim or Esther in spite of the fact that both of them deserved it from time to time. And I am not the good, good father. I get one good He is the good, good father who loves. And when you see the greatness of his love, fear does not rule in your heart. John says there is no fear in love. 
And you can be rid of that lid. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. Let's talk about a third, a third aspect of this ability to choose. Um, well, a third aspect of, of the failure to choose. It makes you feel victimized. Years ago, years ago, I had a buddy who was incredibly indecisive. I mean, you walk into McDonald's. I walk into McDonald's, I know what I want as I'm pulling in. I mean, it's McDonald's for crying out loud. They only have this much stuff. And they only change their menu when you forget how bad that McRib was and you'll go back for it another time. Right? That hurt, Dave says. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you go into McDonald's with my buddy years ago. This is decades ago. You go into McDonald's and I'm like, uh, yeah, I want two, Ma- two Big Macs, I want fries, and uh, give, me a, give me a soft drink. And, and, and now it's his turn to order. And now listen for the sigh. Okay, here it is. The clerk says, welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order, please? because it's just overwhelming to him to have to decide, do I want a big back or a quarter pounder, right? And that indecisiveness showed up in huge areas in his life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you some things about him. Early in his marriage, his wife was tasked, tasked with making the decisions. Financial decisions? Yeah, you make that. Where do you get your car inspected? You figure it out. Find the best place. Educational decisions for the children, homeschooling, Christian school, public school. Yeah, you decide. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. Even church decisions. Where do you want to go to church? I don't know, hon. Where do you want to go to church? About a decade into that marriage, my friend found himself becoming resentful. Listen to the irony. He felt victimized as though his wife had forced herself into leadership in that household. That is not what happened. That is not what happened. His indecisiveness placed her in a role she did not want to be in. But still, he felt victimized. Because indecisiveness will make you feel like you're not in control. And when you're not in control, someone else is. And when someone else is in control, you can feel victimized. Listen, God never wants you to play the victim card or to even allow yourself to be victimized or to, or to proclaim, I am victimized. There's nothing healthy in that. What he wants you to do is choose with wisdom. And he gives you wisdom to choose with. It says in James chapter 1, right in the, early in the book, verse 5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Listen to it again. James says, If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, and it will be given to you. You don't have to be the victim. You can choose. Now, still though, you and I both know that often people don't want to make choices. People remain indecisive. And there are lots of reasons for them. One of the reasons is we have unrealistic expectations. I think there are people who never got married because their expectation was just unrealistic. Ladies, I'm going to tell you, if you're looking for the perfect guy, you're too late. Laurel got him. <laughs> I didn't even look at her until now. That took a lot of courage to swing my head around and look at her. <laughs> She's laughing uncontrollably. That's good. When I'm shopping for something, I research it to death. I mean, I do. Magazine articles, I read them all. Um, video reviews, I'm watching video reviews for this. Consumer reports, I have a subscription through my library. I have a library card out of a library in Pittsburgh so that I can get on consumer reports for free and read that kind of stuff. I check Amazon reviews, I check them really closely. And did you know there is a website that reviews Amazon reviews? How many knew that? Yeah, see, a couple of you knew that. I know that. You know why? Because, man, I have this unrealistic expectation that if I work hard enough, I can avoid buyer's remorse. I can't. I can't. 
I'm here to tell you that you're never going to find the perfect deal. You're never going to find a perfect product. It's just not going to happen. So don't allow yourself to be indecisive. Research, do the math, figure it out, and then make the choice. Here's another reason, fear. Fear that we make the wrong decision or fear <laughs> fear that we'll be shamed for the decision we made. So my wife and I, we just bought a mattress. The last time we bought a mattress, which I don't think was that long ago, but Laurel seems to think it was a thousand years ago. But the last time we bought a mattress, I can remember we went into the place and there were like just maybe a dozen mattresses here. You know what I mean? It was a section of a very large store. This time we went in and we opened the door and there's the mattresses. And it was like looking across a Nebraska cornfield. It just went on and on and on and on with mattresses. Oh, wow. Dozens of choices. Dozens. What if we, what if we picked the wrong one? So we picked one. We're laying it like, I don't know if I like this. Wow. We just spent $15 million on this. I'm not sure if I like this. Finally, after a couple nights of that, I got up and I said to Laurel, you know what? When our parents went and bought mattresses, there were three. There was a small, there was a twin, and there was a uh, full size. And that was it. And they bought the full size because that's the one they needed. Here we are looking at a million mattresses and wondering if we're going to be happy with it. Maybe, maybe this fear we have needs to be set aside. And we just need to, to, to say, yeah, this mattress is the one. Not worry about it. I don't know. How do you say that? I'm not saying we can't return it. <laughs> Here's the other thing, the shame. Wait, wait. You put new windows in? Yeah, yeah, those windows we had, they just didn't hold. I could feel I could stand there. If you put a cup of water on the windowsill, it would probably freeze. Yeah, but you didn't get Anderson windows. What is wrong with you, man? You should always get Anderson windows. What? You dummy. Guys do that. We, we do it. Some of us don't do it that boldly. Some of us do it a little bit less boldly. But some of us do it really boldly. <laughs> You're such a jerk. Why did you buy a Ruger? You know? It's just who we are. And so fear prevents us from making choices. Here's another one, and this is a killer. Work avoidance. Translation, laziness. Because choosing is hard work. It requires research, and then it requires a timely action associated with the choice you're making, and then it requires follow-up. I have books that I'm getting rid of because I think this is a marvelous invention. (laughs) And I'd like to be rid of all my paper books. I smell paper books, and it smells like a dog pen to me. Ah, So I got these books. It's a stack about this high that needs to be sold. They were tucked away in a little cabinet there. They've been tucked away in that cabinet for about seven years. And my wife took them all out and put them right in front of my television. (laughs) You know what she has in mind? Sell the books. Get those books out of our house. (sighs) I got to tell you, that's one of the hardest things. Because I had to open an account with Amazon. And I accidentally opened a business account and they charged me $40. So now I got to downgrade that to an individual account. Now I got to talk to Amazon. Amazon is wonderful if you're buying. If you're a seller, they hate your guts. Right? Bethany knows, right? So I'm in the middle of downgrading my account. Last night, Laurel says, I'm putting these books away. You're not selling them. I said, honey, I'm selling them, but this takes a long time. She said, oh, I'm putting them away. She put them all away. But here's what I have to do. I got to downgrade that account. Been working on that two weeks. They said it's going to be downgraded in another five days. And then I have to choose which books I'm going to sell because there's a lot in my office. Then, out of the ones I said, I'm going to sell these, I have to check with Laurel because she's going to say, don't sell that. It smells good. (laughs) And then I have to grade them. Like, this book is like new, or this book is very good, or this book is good, or this book is acceptable. And then I have to list them. i got to type in those ISBN, whatever numbers they are, to put those in there. I don't want to do any of that. I don't even want to make a decision about which book to get rid of. I just don't want to do it. That's work avoidance. It's laziness. And it keeps us from doing what we have in mind. Listen, if that has to do with kingdom issues, that's awful. 
It's okay if it's the books that you have sitting there that annoy your wife. Maybe it's not okay. But it's really bad when it's kingdom stuff, right? So I want you to get rid of the lid. I want you to get rid of the lid. And I have three clever aphorisms to share with you regarding how to remove your lid. Do you know what an aphorism is? I said to a friend one time, I have three aphorisms. And they said, are you going to have those removed? <laughs> how about Rusty and George know what an aphorism? An aphorism is a short, memorable phrase, okay? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus was the master of the aphorism, okay? That's one of his. I'm going to give you mine in a minute. There are three of them. But first, I want to remind you that all of these things come by trusting God. We walk by faith, not by sight. So you're going to do these things. I'm going to encourage you to do these things. We're going to take communion in a few moments. You're going to have the bread in your hand, the cup in your hand, and you're going to be waiting. And when I was young, I used to say, I hate that it takes so long to do communion. I love that it takes so long to do communion because that is a time when nothing can interrupt you. If your cell phone rings, you don't even have to check it. You can take, excuse me, you can take that time and you can commune with God about the lid of indecisiveness. Is this a lid in your life? Okay. So I'm going to give you these aphorisms. You're going to give them some thought. I'd like to suggest that by faith, you implement all three of them in your life. The first one is this, resolve to resolve. That's an aphorism, resolve to resolve. Decide that you are tired of indecision in your life. You just have to decide that. I mean, until you say, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired, you will remain being sick and tired. And until you resolve to resolve, you will remain unresolved. Kind of sounds silly, but it's accurate. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Jacob wrestles with God. That was not a favorite story until last year when I was preaching a series to you and we covered that last year and we talked about him wrestling with God. And it just, I really got the story for the first time. That Jacob had had it with being Jacob. He hated being Jacob. He hated where the choices he had made in his life had taken him to. And he said, well, let me read it. Genesis 32, starting in verse 24, I'm going to read seven verses. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man said, what is your name? What was his name? Liar, deceiver, cheater. That is what Jacob meant. What is your name? Liar, deceiver, cheater. Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. (laughs) You want to know God's name? Who do you think you are, Jacob? But the man replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Isn't that beautiful? So what Jacob did is in his mind, he made a resolution that I am not going to let go of this. I am committed to not being who I have been and to being who God wants me to be. I will not let you go 
You've dislocated my hip, but I will not let you go until you bless me. And so what I'm encouraging you to do is to resolve, to resolve. Say, I'm going to be a person who's not afraid to make choices. Number two, the second aphorism, fear to fear. We've talked about indecisiveness and how it's often a result of fear, and that fear is seldom a good thing. And when it comes becomes a pattern in your life, fearfulness, it comes with a cost. Fear comes with a cost. Now, you know, think of some illustrations. Fear could keep you from going ahead and applying to that college that you wanted to for that degree that you wanted to get because you thought, I don't know that I can get that. I don't know that I can do that hard work. It could keep you from connecting with that person, that the girl of your dreams, the boy of your dreams, you know? And yeah, she'll say no. I'm pretty sure she'll say no because, because, because this, right? Fear can keep you from doing that, but those are trivial matters compared to this. Fear can keep you from talking to your best friend about his or her life with Christ because you're afraid they might reject you. Wow. Wow. And then what happens? Laurel um, gave me a great quote from a book called, by George MacDonald, called The Princess and the Goblin. It's a children's book. And here's the quote. That is the way fear serves us. It always sides with the thing we are afraid of. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? And so fear to fear, say, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to make this choice because I am more afraid of not making a choice. I am more afraid of surrendering my ability to choose to someone else. I am more afraid of just letting the tires get bald. I I am afraid to be fearful. So I will be courageous. I will be bold. Here's the third aphorism. Commit to commit. When you make a decision, listen, this is carefully phrased, so listen to this sentence. When you make a decision, unless doing so is trivial or unhealthy, stand by it. Do you understand that? When you make a decision, stand by it, unless it's just something trivial. You know, if you decide to switch from Crest to Colgate, I don't care if you stand by that, right? Or if it's unhealthy, I made a decision and I'm going to just sin. No, don't stand by that one, right? When you make a decision, unless doing so is trivial or unhealthy, stand by it. Laurel and I have been married for uh, for over three decades. And I talked to her about this and I said, do you mind if I share that? She said, tell it, tell it, tell it. Both of us will admit to you that there were many times that the only reason we stuck with it was because we had made a commitment. Some of you are nodding, mostly women. (laughs) We made a commitment to be committed to our marriage. We made a commitment to be committed to God and faithful to what we had pledged to him. We made a commitment to our children. We made a commitment to the kingdom. We made a commitment. (laughs) We were committed to commit to that commitment. See, when you make a decision, you can look to God for wisdom, and then you can trust him to carry you through. Do you remember the words of James? I I had them on the screen a few moments ago. Just listen as I read them from James 1.5. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In other words, God doesn't say, wait, you're coming to me for wisdom? Last time I gave you wisdom, you didn't pay any attention. I'm finding fault in you. 
He doesn't find fault. When you go to him and say, I could use some wisdom, God. I need to make a decision. The scripture says that he gives generously without finding fault. But when you ask, and this is the warning part, it's the very next verse. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. If you feel like that was insulting, keep listening. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. They can't commit to commit. That's what he's saying. So when you make a choice that is a a godly choice, that doesn't violate God's will and, and God's word and the godly counsel that God has for you, and you believe God has led you to make that choice, stay with it. Commit to it. Follow through with it. Commit to live out your commitment. Those are the aphorisms. Resolve to resolve. Fear to fear. Commit to commit. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember a God who resolved to resolve. He set his face like flint for Jerusalem. We remember a God who, we can't say he feared to fear because he's so fearless, right? But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross rather than to say, that's going to hurt. I don't think I'll do it. A God who committed to us. He committed to be committed to us. All the way through the grave. He calls us to the same thing. I love that it takes time to do communion. Because it gives you that time to reflect, to think, to pause, to consider. Is this a lid in my life? Do I know there's a decision I made that's wrong and I have to choose to do the hard thing? I love this phrase, man. God spoke to me through this phrase years ago. Love is the rugged choice to do the right thing. That's a great line. That's an aphorism and a half right there, right? Is there a decision in your life that you've been dumbing around with and you haven't done it because it's hard or because you're afraid or because you're lazy or because you just don't want to? But you know God wants you to make this decision because this is a godly way to behave. This is a committed way to behave. Is that in your life? You have communion to commune with God about that. and Say, God, speak to my heart. And he will speak. He's not like a dumb, unable to speak idle. But his spirit will speak to yours. 